Today's sermon text is in two parts. The first is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 21 through 27. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The second reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 22 through 29. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds, first binds, the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is God's word. Amen. Um, my son asked me to talk about him this morning, so you're welcome, Levi. Um, he enjoys video games, as I'm sure many of you. Anybody play video games in here? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Raise it really high. Um, 20 years ago, it would have been people like 12 years old. Now it's men who are in their 50s, and uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, but he plays video games, and there's a few games that, that, he, that he likes, and uh, here's one of them. Not this. It's something else. Yeah. Anybody heard of this game? I tried to play this one time. He was at school, and he was like, Dad, uh, and I told him, I said, you know, if I tried to play these games, I could totally beat you at them. And he was like, no way. I, don't I still believe that. If I put my mind to it. I believe, that my, I believe that my will is greater than his, but he does not buy that at all. And so, um, and so I try to play this game one, one day, and I got through the first level after dying about 35 times. And I thought to myself, man, this is really hard. I don't feel like playing this. And I was like whining like that to myself. I don't feel like playing this. You know, and I'm like, 
why am I doing this to myself? And so then there's another game he plays, Battlefield 1. Anybody play Battlefield 1 in here? It's a World War 1 game. It's, it's really cool. These games are so realistic that I like whenever he's playing, sometimes he's playing them, I will watch him play. They look so real. But all this stuff that you've got to think about while you're playing. You've got this little deal in your bottom left-hand corner so you can see what's going on around you, I guess, and you'll know who's on your team and who's not on your team, and you've got, like, blimps out there and trees on fire and smoldering ruins from, I don't know what's going on, but World War I, obviously, but um, I'm looking at the crosshairs here, and then you're, like, changing weapons, and you're having to go find new ammo in all these places, and I'm thinking, I'm looking at this game, I'm thinking, I don't want to play this. This is too hard. So I want to show you the games that I like to play. One, one particular game is this game. I love this game. This game is called, it's, it, it's a really elaborate name, Crossy Road. Anybody play, anybody play Crossy Road in here? Raise your hand, join me in my humiliation. Raise it up, you cowards. You cowards. Look at you, pitiful. Pitiful, thank you. Thank you. Um... Many of you play this. You play it when you're in the restroom. You play it before bed at night. You, you, we all play this game. So uh, that's my favorite one, the unicorn down at the bottom. I like playing with the unicorn because the little rainbow thing that comes out of his back end. And so, and it's basically a play on, it's like a take on Frogger. Anybody play Frogger when you were a kid? And, um, and so, but this is like endless. You just keep on going and going and going until you die. You get run over by a car. And so... Uh, and the goal is just to go as long as you can go. And so there are, I've, I've done pretty well at this game. I've, got, I've had a lot of points. I've gone like 20 or 30 minutes and played this and, and survived. And I've gotten other characters like the Kookaburra. That's one of my achievements. Um, another one of my achievements is the uh, Catherine, the Queen's Guard. Queen's Guard. Uh, I've got the whole haunted house suite. I've got Dracula, Frankenstein, all those guys. And it's cool because when you play with those guys, it gets really dark and bats are flying around. And I like that game because I don't have to think. It's easy. I don't want to have to learn how to play games. I don't want to have to... When, like, I remember the PlayStation first came out. I grew up playing Atari and all of a sudden, I'm looking at a controller with two bumper buttons here, four buttons here, two control pads. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just not doing this. No, nope, I'm not doing it. Um, I'm used, I was used to doing this. Totally intuitive. Like the iPhone. And so... I think that's probably the biggest thing that keeps us from changing. It's hard. We want this. But the problem is, is that our problems, our stories, they're difficult. They're nuanced. Change is complex. It's complex. People badly want people like me to give three points. And hopefully that'll leverage us out of our darkness, out of our brokenness, out of our sin. You didn't get to where you are by following three points. Three points are not going to get you out. 
I'm totally convinced of this. It's not impossible to change. You can change. You really can. But if your expectation is, is that my efforts and engagement in tr- personal transformation will be based on the assumption that really good church services and sermons and some mild interaction with God during the week is going to save you, you're wrong. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. I really hope you all come back next week. Um, (laughs) It doesn't happen that way. Change is complex. You and your brokenness did not just happen. You emerged out of a story. Your brain has gone through literal, scientifically proven changes as a result of subjecting yourself to the brokenness that you have in your life. Your will has become one. Your identity has been fused with your struggles. This is one reason why we always negotiate with ourselves. When we're feeling shameful because we've fallen, we've stumbled, we are ready to pack up, move out, and start over. 30 minutes later, we can't imagine being without that brokenness in our lives because it's who we are. So one sermon, not even one series, is going to fix you. What am I I doing here, Chris? My goal today and throughout the next six or eight weeks is to lay out a pathway which will give you hope. And as you walk that path, you know that as you trust Jesus putting one foot in front of the other for the rest of your life, that you're going to look back over your shoulder and like next Easter when you come and we're singing about Jesus' victory over Satan and sin, you won't be just a smidge more cynical because you'll have between now and next Easter 365 days to struggle and fall and doubt and trip and stumble, but you'll see real change in your life. I want to give you a path. I want to give you a, um, a, a, a road map. For the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into the condition of our souls. Again, this is complex. When I say complex and digging in, I don't mean we're going to, I'm going to try to you know, speak over your heads. I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm going to speak from a lot of personal experience and my efforts to change, to grow, to be different. It's, it's really hard. Every day, is, is, it takes discipline, effort. Now, one of my favorite quotes of all time is by Dallas Willard. Um, he said, God is opposed to earning, but he's not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning but not effort. Um, We are where we are because you've heard me say this many times. We live in a broken world. I want to talk about the brokenness of our world for a few minutes. Now, I want to say this because where we are as people, broken, maybe hopeless, discouraged by our sin and our brokenness, 
we have to get, we have to respond to complexity with complexity. The scriptures don't just give us John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We have book after book after book after book filled with verse after verse after verse after verse that is intended to nurture and water our souls. And so it may feel like a bit of a Bible drill this morning, but I want you to know that I've got a destination in my mind that I think will give you a lot of joy and hope today enduring joy and hope. But we're going to have to get there. So I beg you, bear with me this morning. Um, Our predicament, that's part one, our predicament. Why you and I are stuck. Galatians 1, 3 and 4 says this, that Christ, about Christ, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil Age. It doesn't say he gave himself to deliver us from our sins, period. He gave himself to deliver us from our sins. He gave himself for our sins, excuse me, to deliver us from this present evil age. So a couple of things. The world in which we live right now, the state that it's in, Scripture says this world is described in God's eyes as the present evil age. And the present evil age gives rise somehow to our sin and brokenness. Somehow they're related. The brokenness of this world is related to my sin and your sin. Okay? It's Galatians 1, 4. Ephesians 2. Let's go a little bit deeper. 1 and 2. And you, Paul says, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in that. So he's talking about people in a non-believing state. And of every person who has been in a non-believing state or is in a non-believing state, if you are a non-believing person or have been, you are either at one time or are now dead in the trespasses of your sins. And he says, you're dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked following the course of of this world. I don't have time to tease this out, but the present evil age and this world are both shorthands for describing the brokenness of our world. They're the same thing. The brokenness of our world, this present evil age, um, this world, both the brokenness of our world relates to and gives rise to our own personal sinfulness. We are being nurtured and bathed in a world that is further conforming us away from God into the image of something anti-God. What is that? He says this, following the prince of the power of the air. Now that's an interesting phrase, the prince of the power of the air. So he's a prince, he's a ruler of some sort, he's got power, he has real legitimate power, And he says the air, which is an ancient way of saying the spirit realm. Can't see him, but it's real, and he's among us. He is among us. Satan, the demonic hosts, are not a figment of, uh, of our imagination. They are real. 
And he's the prince of the power of the air. He has authority over the course of this world, over this present evil age. He said, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Um, The reason why in the Bible the word son is often used is because in ancient culture, the firstborn son was the heir of the father's possessions. It's not a misogynistic uh, blow-off of women. When the Bible calls us sons of God, that's the reason why. Because anyone who comes to faith in Jesus, regardless if you're a male or a female, you become the heir of God. So even women are sons of God in the sense, not that they change gender, but in the sense that they become heirs of God and receive everything that Jesus, the firstborn son, gets. Similarly... If you have not come into faith in Jesus, you are a son of disobedience. You are a son, an heir of what will happen one day to the prince of the power of the heir. You will get what he's going to get. You don't want that, okay? You don't want that. And so there's a few things we can pull out of this, Ephesians uh, 2, 1 and 2. Satan is the prince of the power of the heir. Satan is at work in all people before Jesus. He's at work. And the course of this world is a way of saying that the way this world works bears the stamp of Satan. It bears a stamp. So, man, this this isn't good, right? Right? Yes, amen. Right? I mean, this this is not good. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Now, remember, Paul, when he says these things, he's not standing behind a little lectern in a seminary class. He's talking to people who are living in the real world who are wondering, why is it that I struggle changing? What is wrong with me? This is Paul's response. He's assessing and diagnosing what the problem is. So don't hear this as just cold data. Anybody think of uh, Fizz when I said that? (laughs) Somebody said they would give me $5 if I said what he said. But because I'm a man of integrity, I will not do that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. I will not fleece the sheep. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Um, In their case, it says in their case, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's talking about those people who are perishing. Those people who are not in Christ. He says, in their case, the God of this world. Whoa. The prince of the power of the air. Now he's calling him a God? What's up with that? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is our lives. Living in the present evil age. Following without even thinking about it, the course of this world. Enslaved as sons of disobedience to the anti-God, Satan. We're enslaved to him, his will, his ways. He's conforming us, changing us, nurturing us in his image. This is what's happening to us. This is scary. 
When it says that Satan is the God of this age, it's not saying that he is equal to the Lord God Almighty. What he's saying is, is that Satan is worshipped as a God. Now, I want you to try to feel that truth. Feel that. I don't know many people who bow down and say, Lord Satan, I want you to come into my heart and change me. I've never known anybody who did that. Uh, you know, there's like, I know there's like a church of Satan, and it's kind of hard to take them seriously. It's like, seriously, the church of Satan? Like, you believe that's a compelling way to live your life? Okay, whatever. So it's hard to take people like that seriously. You know, I don't mean to ridicule them. I guess I do. But um, it's, it's really hard to believe that. Like, I get why you're a part of other religions and other cults, but it's like, the church of Satan. You're just messing with me, right? Seriously, you're part of that? Anyway, so, uh, but most people don't ever say, like, Satan, I really love you, man. I want your future. Um, I want to be with you. Satan, I want to know your presence. Um, I don't know anybody that says that. But he says that based on the condition of our hearts, the way that we follow the course of this world, it is as though we are bowing down and worshiping him. That he's an idol in our lives. We really, really, really love Satan's ways. They make the most sense to us, don't they? It doesn't make sense to love people who mistreat you and pray for them. That's dumb. But it makes a lot of sense to get people back. That makes sense to me. I like that. When somebody says something mean to me, I want to say something mean back. I really do. When something does me wrong, I want to do them wrong back. That makes a lot of sense to me. And when we think things like it's really, really dumb to forgive people. Now, most people who were raised in the church would never say that or think those words because like we've been church churchanized, okay? And so we would never say that. But functionally, we really believe it because that's why we don't do it. Forgiveness is really, really dumb to a lot of us. Isn't it? It is to me sometimes. I don't want to do it sometimes. It's just a dumb idea. Now, cognitively, I don't believe that. I believe forgiveness is beautiful and good. And I thank God for the work of redemption he's done in my life because when I see other people walk in forgiveness, it's one of the most exquisite things I've ever seen. It challenges me. It gives me a yearning for the presence of God. But when I'm feeling the sting of somebody else's transgression, I don't want to forgive. Now, I'll be honest, it, it takes sometimes a little while to get there. But I thank God for the work of conversion in my heart because I know, I can see my heart getting there. With some people, it's taken years. Others, it took days. Others, I'm still in transit. My heart's softening. I'm getting to a place where I don't speak or think evil things about them, but I'm walking in forgiveness. I'm learning how to do that. That's beautiful to me. It hurts. It's hard. But I'm learning how to do that. That's what happens to, to believers. We, be, we gradually were conformed to the ways of Jesus. The ways of Jesus become beautiful to us. But the ways of Jesus, if they're not beautiful to you, it's not because the ways of Jesus are really dumb. It's because we're blind. 
the God of this world has deceived us. The ways of Jesus look really, really stupid to us. And if we think that or find ourselves pushing back on what Jesus wants us to do with our lives, then we know we're blind. You can know you're blind. And then you can ask Jesus, please open my eyes. Take my heart and bring it to you. Reform me. Give me new affections for Jesus. I want to be different. You can pray that. You can be proactive in dealing with your blindness if you just recognize that you're blind. Just recognize it. This is one of the reasons why under everything that we do at this church, under everything, our core value, the core of our core values is this. We want every single time we gather as a church on the Lord's Day on Sunday mornings for you to walk away knowing that we have gone over and above in making much of the name of Jesus every single week. Every single week. I can preach a dud of a sermon, but if Jesus is made much of, then we hit a homer today. And we want that to seep into everything we do at our church. Because here's the thing. If you're not able to see the beauty of Jesus, you are likely not to change. Because at the center of change is, he is better than what I'm in. He's better. He's better. He's better. We get Jesus. Whatever we lose, we get Jesus. And that is good. That is good. I had somebody tell me just the other day, one of the best things I've heard in a long time from a person in our church, and this person told me, every single time I gather with you guys, I feel like I experience Jesus. I'm so thankful. I've had like three or four people tell me that over the last few weeks. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. I know there's a lot of things we were, you know, we could get better at. But man, I really am glad that I hear that. I'm hearing that more. Now, that's a lot of bad news. But here's something really interesting. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, and I just want you to hear this. Don't turn there. Just listen to these words. Is in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And the writer of Hebrews speaks about people who have come to a knowledge of the truth. People who have come to faith in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says this about us. That he says that we have been enlightened. We have tasted the heavenly gift. He uses these visceral terms. He says we have shared in the Holy Spirit. He says we have, again, tasted the goodness of the word of God. And we have tasted the powers of the age to come. Believers. We've tasted the powers of the age to come. So we live in the present evil age. And the age that Jesus will bring with him at his second coming, we have tasted the powers of the age to come, all of us who are in Jesus. 
whoa, I want to taste that. Now, it's not a buffet. We don't gorge ourselves on the powers of the age to come. So there's a tension that we live in. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is far from Jesus. We live in a world in which there is still the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, who is still active in the lives of the sons of disobedience, having his way. But those who have come to Jesus have tasted of the heavenly gift, the word of God. We've shared in the spirit, and we have tasted of the powers of the age to come. Boom. So we don't have to be slaves of the God of this world anymore. We don't have to be owned by our brokenness and our sin. We can be different. But how? How? I'm guessing y'all took me to church when I was like one and two, right? Especially Easter. Three weeks old, I was in church. Today, when people have babies, they're out for like six months. But in three weeks old, uh, there was no passive-aggressive intent there, I promise you. Um, Just an innocent assessment of our culture and where we are as church people. Um, If you're offended, forgiveness is beautiful. Just remember that. Okay. Um, So how does this happen? Because I've been through... 43 Easter's. I know you're thinking, I thought it was more like 27. But yes, I've been through 40, 43 Easter's. 43 Easter's. And I'll be honest with you, for a long time, for a long stretch of my life, Easter was like, what? I couldn't relate to any of the songs. We're singing about Christ's victory over sin and Satan, and I'm like, I'm getting worse. I'm in church three times a week. I'm getting dragged to home groups on Friday nights with my parents. Uh, The indoctrination is not working with me. What's going on? I want to stay in Hebrews for a minute before we go to our main text. And we're going to stay in our main text just for a couple of minutes. By couple, I mean, you know, two times ten, something like that. Um, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Anybody, anybody want to change in here? Want to grow in Jesus? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Anybody yearning to be made like Jesus? Maybe that's a better question. I am too. Change is complex. Bear with me. Remember my challenge. What would happen if you listen to the Sunday message, re-listen to it, a couple of times during the week, once or twice during the week. And what would happen if you took notes and spent the rest of your week studying the text of Scripture that was preached on Sunday morning? What would happen to your heart if 52 weeks in a row you did that? I know some of you aren't there yet. It's okay. But we want you to be discipled. We want you to be nurtured and grow and become like Jesus. It's going to take more than just auditing messages. Dig with me. Go with me. Let's be together. Let's share in the Holy Spirit together this morning. So he says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it's kind of an enigmatic verse. It's kind of weird. He says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. The children share in flesh and blood. That's a poetic way of saying we're all humans. Okay? We're all humans. 
He himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He became human too. 100% God became 100% human and stayed 100% God while he was 100% human. I don't know what, I don't even, I can't even, I don't understand that, but it is. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. I call it something beautiful and mysterious and strange and bizarre and amazing. So Jesus, totally man, totally God, he took on our flesh and blood that through death, so he, he came, took on the life, like the humanity of a person so that that person would be killed. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So Satan is not only the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, has authority, has power, but he literally has the power of death. And Jesus took on human flesh so that he would die and break Satan's power in this regard. Whoa. What does the Bible say that the wages of sin is? Death. Sin and death are inseparable. This is why every person dies. We are born away from God. And it's only through Jesus can we be reconciled to God through his death. Through his death. That is the devil, the person who has the power of death. And deliver all those, deliver. I love the word deliver. I love the word deliver. What do you hear when you hear the word deliver? I'm not talking pizza. I mean like spiritual stuff. <laughs> deliver. What do you hear when you hear the word deliver? What other words come to mind? What other synonyms for deliver? What? Rescue. What else? Free. What else? Freedom. What else? Set free. Got a lot of frees. Anything else? What? Restored. Man, all these things are true. Redeemed. What? Rejuvenated. What did you say, Bernice? New birth. New birth. All these, when you hear the word deliver, all of these words should, should converge on this word. This is what deliverance means. He died in our place so that we would be delivered from Satan and through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus' death did something that set us free from lifelong slavery. But he says something really interesting in this text that maybe we missed. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Is Satan still around? He is. He still is. Now, what's up with that? Why is Satan still around? Did Jesus' death not work? Does that explain why we still struggle in sin? Languish in our brokenness? What's wrong with Jesus' death? Or is there anything wrong with it? The word for um, destroy in English is destroy. And what destroy means is to annihilate. It's to obliterate, cease to exist. But because English and Greek, our our New Testament was written in Greek primarily, because there's not a word that reflects precisely the word that Paul used in Greek, we had to opt for, translators had to opt for the word destroy. But destroy doesn't really bring home really what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Because the word in the Greek that he uses for destroy means this, 
to put out of action and to render inoperative. It doesn't mean to annihilate. The scriptures already tell us that one day Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire at following at some point Jesus' second coming. But right now, somehow Jesus' death curbed and curtailed Satan's influence in this present evil age. Somehow Jesus' death brought to an end Satan's power over believers' lives. Somehow Jesus' death put Satan's power out of action and rendered it obsolete in our lives. Somehow. Now you may be hearing this thinking, man, really? I don't know if I buy into this because I'm still really broken. Just because you're still really broken doesn't mean this isn't true. It does not mean this isn't true. I had a Jehovah's Witness at my house the other day. He's walking in the driveway, and I was like, ah, why didn't I run in the house? You know, and so, um, and so, um, so he's trying to debate me on Trinity because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I'm like, well, of course it's not the Bible. I'm so frustrated with these guys. It took 300 years for the church to look at all of the nuanced, beautiful scripture describing the Godhead and to figure out exactly what the scriptures were teaching because it's so nuanced and it's so complex. The word Trinity is simply a word that we use to describe this massive body of theology in our New Testament. And he's not listening to me, of course. And so pardon my cynicism, I'm sorry. And, and I said, it's kind of like, you know, and he says, well, because it's not in there, that means that must mean there's not a Trinity. And I'm like, well, you know, there's an engine in my car. We came up with the name engine. I made that name up. That doesn't mean that it, there's an engine or there's not an engine in my car. It's just a word, okay? Um, how did I get onto that? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, so because the scriptures teach that Satan has been destroyed and you don't feel it, it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not true. Okay, so how can we take that truth and bring it home in our lives? Anybody want to know? Anybody still yearning to experience the transformation power of the Holy Spirit? So many of you are like... Now it's like, yep. So please bear with me. Bear with me, man. You're going to watch TV longer today than this sermon. Please bear with me. Man. Mark 1, 21 through 27. I'm going to read through this again. Listen to this. Feel this. Think about this. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished at his teaching? For he taught them as one who had what? Authority. And not as the scribes. He had authority. I want you to go down to the end. He cast the unclean spirit out of a person. That's what authority. It didn't just sound like authority. He demonstrated authority. So he cast a demon out of a person and they were all amazed, verse 27, so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. So they're going, whoa, this guy has authority. Then he casts a demon out of a person. 
a real and legitimate demon, not a psychosis. I'm not saying there aren't psychoses in our world today, but a lot of liberal theologians want you to believe that there aren't such a thing as Satan and demons. This is all just, you know, chemical balance issues. That's not what's going on here. That is not what's happening here. This is a real and legitimate demon that Jesus casts out, and then they are astonished again, and they say, Whoa! He not only teaches, but he has authority. So when they say authority, they're not just saying, Man, he's really bold. They're not saying, man, he says some really provocative things. I've never thought about that before. What they're saying is, is that when he talks, the demonic hosts are compelled to obey him. They must obey him. I can't even relate to that. My kids don't even get this, even though I threaten their lives if they disobey me. And that's what sometimes it takes that. Not, not always, but just sometimes. Just sometimes, like once a week. So, but I don't know what it's like to have the kind of authority that people who are under me in my realm are totally compelled to obey me. They have to, like androids. And that's what's happening with the demonic hosts. Jesus has that kind of authority. That is incredible. A theologian named George Eldon Ladd who I've borrowed some from today, wrote a wonderful book. If you want a great, great resource on this, it's called The Gospel of the Kingdom by George Eldon Ladd. I'm going to say it again. It's a book I've read probably no lie 15 times. It is fantastic. George Eldon Ladd, The Gospel of the Kingdom. He says this, Jesus demonstrated the good news of the kingdom of God by delivering men from the bondage of Satan. He demonstrated the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, last part. Matthew 12, 22 through 29. Then a demon-oppressed man or possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. So this man, his sickness was unique. His sickness was related to a demonic oppression in his life. And so Jesus healed him, and the people were amazed by Jesus' authority. And all the people were amazed, and he said, can, and they said, can this be the son of David? Now, the son of David is a big, 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 fat, hairy phrase. Because if you say that in that culture, what you're saying is this is the Messiah. Can this be the Messiah? Now, this is Matthew 12. Matthew goes all the way to Matthew 28. And a lot of people think that the early chapters in Matthew mean that it happened years before Jesus was killed. That's not the case here. The story at this point is rapidly picking up steam, and we are really, really close to Jesus' Passion Week when this is happening. So don't be, don't be uh, uh, distracted by the, the numbering of the chapters. The drama is picking up. The religious leaders see Jesus as a threat. They don't like it that he's a threat. And then people start saying, could this be the son of David? And everybody knew what that meant. And so in verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the, pre- uh, the I almost said the president, the prince of demons, the pre- I don't mean our president, that's not what I meant, um, the president of demons, 
Jeez. That this man... <laughs> it is only about Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. It's only by Beelzebul that he does that. This, that's like this uh, um, satanic force. One of Satan's generals, so to speak. It's only by that power. They had to say that because they wanted to hold on to their power. And if they admitted that Jesus was the Messiah, that means Jesus is now the boss of the Pharisees. They got to listen to him. He's in control. He's the president of the Pharisees. And so, um, so knowing their thoughts, I love those times throughout scripture that knowing their thoughts, just a little nuance the gospel writers throw in there that, yeah, he's God. He's God. Unlike what our Jehovah's Witnesses friends might say that he's the brother of the devil or something else. No, he is God. He was not created. He created. He is God. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Every kingdom. Kingdoms don't survive survive civil wars. They just don't. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, why in the world would Satan do damage to his own kingdom? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then he goes on to say this. He gives an explanation of what is actually happening in the spirit realm. Now check this out. Because this is a text that is often, people often look at and they're like, huh, Like, what, what do I do with that? And, or, or maybe sometimes it's interpreted really weird. Listen to this. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now check this out. Last two verses. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God or the rule of God. The authority of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So I want to give you a quick little interpretation of what's going on here. Remember, we live in what kind of an age? Present evil age. Course of this world. Who's the God of this age? Satan. When Jesus was demonstrating his authority, what was he doing? Casting out, starts with a D, sounds like demons. Casting out demons. Who is he casting them out of? People. So you've got this present evil age. You've got Satan, who's the god of this age, little g god. And then you've got demon-possessed people that belong to him, sons of disobedience. So let me give you a quick little overview quick look of what all this means when Jesus talks about all that, when the, this house and strong man and all this. When Jesus is talking about the house that he enters, he's talking about this present evil age. When he mentions the strong man, the strong man is Satan who owns the house. He's the God of this house. What are Satan's goods? Well, what's Jesus messing with? People. Demon-possessed and oppressed people. In the Mark passage that we read, it was a demon-possessed person. 
In the Matthew passage, it's a demon-oppressed person. Someone who is demonized, who is filled with demons. Don't ask me to metaphysically explain that. I don't know what that looks like. And then you've got those who have been overshadowed by the power of Satan, the way many of us feel. And so the house is the present evil age. The strong man is Satan, the owner of the house. The goods are demon-possessed men and women. And then here's what's awesome. Jesus is doing a home invasion. It's a home invasion. He is the home invader. He has come into Satan's house and he has bound the strong man. Past tense. The bind means Satan's authority being destroyed in all believers' lives. What does the word destroyed mean again? To render inoperative. What? What else? Put out of action, render inoperative. In believers' lives, Satan has been bound. Satan is bound. Now, you might be thinking, what about, Chris, those times where he talks about how you need to bind and loose and all that? The other context is Matthew 18. That's talking about forgiveness in the body of Jesus. That's not talking about binding and loosing devils. In this context, Jesus is saying to all those who follow him that if you belong to me, here's what you can expect in your life. You are no longer owned by the devil. He is not your God anymore. His power has been defeated in your life. Now, you've spent a whole lifetime learning how to follow him. It's going to take time to learn how not to. Whenever I say that, I see some people's eyes roll back. Oh, there's the, there's the spin. If I hand you a screwdriver and tell you, you can go fix whatever it is in your house with this screwdriver, and you don't use it, it doesn't mean the screwdriver is not real. It just means you're not using it. And there are a lot of people in the church who have never been taught how to use the screwdriver. We don't know how to bring to bear the power of the Spirit and discipleship on broken areas of our lives. And so we're languishing for years and years and years in the church. We've gone to the altar time after time after time after time. And we've got people pray for us and spit on us and slather us with oil and all that stuff. And nothing ever happens. Why? Why? Not that all that stuff isn't helpful and good. But that's not primarily what the Bible teaches when it talks about change. Change is learning to live in the rhythms of the Spirit and apply the Word of God to your life. And that takes work and discipline, commitment. When we talk about coming to Jesus, that's what we mean. I see Jesus' ways as beautiful. I am going to learn those ways, and I am going to believe that by the power of the Spirit, I will part ways with my old ways. Satan is bound past tense. The God of this age is bound in your life. I know you've got an addiction. The God of this age has submitted to the power of the Holy Ghost. That required a Holy Ghost, not a Holy Spirit right there. Uh, The Holy Ghost. Just because you're not walking in victory yet does not mean that Satan is not bound and gagged in a corner. Paul talks about, we'll, to get this, we'll deal with this down the road, how sin is literally in our members. It's part of who we are. That's why you can just, that's why it's sin. You can just go to it. When I, was, when I was two years old, three years old, learning how to brush my teeth, it was really, really hard. 
I didn't have the coordination. I didn't know how to apply pressure to my mouth correctly. It was weird. My mom had always come in behind me and rebrush my teeth. Now I do it without thinking about it. It's habit. It's learned. It's part of who I am now. Sin is part of who we are. And it takes time for us to dismantle the power and the habit that it exercises over our lives. But you can do this because Jesus died so that Satan would be defeated in your life. So when we celebrate the death of Jesus, this is what we're talking about. He defeated the devil in believers' lives. We are now Jesus' goods. He's taken us out of that shack called the present evil age, and he's bringing us into his home. And he's caring for us. And nurturing for us, nurturing us and changing us. So here's my question. Do you believe this? It is the nurturing of this belief that will lead to your deliverance. I'm going to say this again. It is the nurturing of this belief that will lead to your eventual deliverance. You've got to get to a place where every single day you are reminding yourself, Satan is bound. No matter what your addiction screams at you, no matter what your habits tell you, Satan is bound. He is. Next week, we're going to go a little deeper. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. You are kind. You did not have to come and take on human flesh and die, but you did. You did. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. I'm thankful that Satan is bound. His power has been curbed in our lives, and we no longer have to yield to him. We don't have to repeat the story to ourselves that I just can't break out of this, but we can repeat the story to ourselves that Jesus died in my place, and Satan is bound. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name.